Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Good morning. Oh, come on, y'all can do better than that. Good morning. All right. Well, I hope you've been enjoying this uh, time while we've been going through Ephesians. If there's anything else, as chaplains, we've been discovering how rich this book, this letter to Ephesus, the Church of Ephesus, truly is. And this was, I think for us, the, the hardest part about this series has been choosing what we're going to preach on. Because we're looking at these passages and we're going, man, there's there's like 10, 11 sermons just in this, this one passage. And we're trying to give an overview here of these things and kind of stick on the points that are jumping out to us. And I know that as I've been studying this over the last three weeks, this passage in Ephesians 4, that God has really been moving on my heart. And I hope that that's clear and he moves on your heart as well this morning. Before we get into this message, I ask that you would go to the Lord in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, there is nothing you cannot do. And Lord, without you, I can do nothing. You've given me this gift of teaching. You've, been, you've given me this gift of prophecy. And I just ask that at this time, anything that is between you and I, that you would remove it from me permanently. That you would cleanse me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, take me over. Use me as your instrument. Speak through me to your people. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. So, during World War I, Hitler commanded that all religious groups unite so that he could control them. Among the Brethren Assemblies, half complied and the other half refused. Those who went along with this order, life was much easier for them. Those who did not faced harsh persecution. In almost every family of those that refused, there was one person that died in a concentration camp. At least one. When the war was over, not over I can imagine that you can understand there were feelings of bitterness that ran deep between these two groups. And there was so much tension. Finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed. Leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat. And for several days, each person spent time in prayer, examining their heart in the light of Christ's commands. Then they came together. Francis Schaeffer, who told of the incident, asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? We were just one, the friend replied. As they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God, 
and yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. When love prevails among believers, especially in times of strong disagreement, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the key to unity is love. And that is unconditional love as seen through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4. We're going to begin looking at this chapter in Ephesians. So turn there with me this morning if you brought your Bibles. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. And go ahead and feel free to keep turning there as I read from the Word of God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all, and in you all. When we're talking about religion, religion is typically a set of rules and precepts that are followed in order to achieve self-improvement or perfection. And these do's and don'ts typically are the focus of that. And I want to burst your bubble a little bit this morning. Christianity, or what it was called originally, the way, is not merely a religion. It's not just about those do's and don'ts. Mind you, we have our instructions, amen. We have them. As I know that you've probably heard what the what Bible stands for. Basic instructions before leaving earth. We have our instructions, but brothers and sisters, it's not simply about those instructions. We are not trying to make ourselves perfect because we can't. It is impossible because the moment that we sin, that was it. We were imperfect. We could not fix it. Christianity is more than a religion. Christianity is a walk. It's a way of life. It is not a sprint by any means. It is a marathon. It is a lifelong relationship with our Creator. In Christianity, it's the one lifestyle where your world is literally turned right side up because we've had it backwards until we come to Christ. Our priorities are completely changed 
moved around and put in the proper order that God intended in the first place. Wow, you guys are just like, promise it's it's okay. This, This is the harder part of what I'm talking about. Because facts are, as difficult as it is to understand, we can do nothing to attain our salvation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many boxes you put together for those poor kids over in those war-torn countries for Christmas. It doesn't matter how many homeless people you feed. It doesn't matter if you live in absolute poverty. Do nothing but pray day in and day out. There are plenty of people that do that. And if they're not having a relationship with Jesus Christ, it does nothing. It's for nothing. As Paul says elsewhere, it's like banging a gong or a cymbal because it's without love. If we have not got that relationship with God, it is without love. Another thing that's interesting about Christianity is we don't go looking for God. He calls us. He's looking. He's waiting. He's doing what he can, what what he will allow himself to do that will not break his character to try to turn our head. And he is there in our ear as we're in the midst of doing something that we know is wrong and he's there saying, hey, stop. You're killing yourself. He calls us. And we don't have to make up for our sins. We don't have to do all these good and wonderful deeds to try to balance the scales. The scales are tipped. And they can't be put the other way by what we do. The beautiful thing about this Christian life is that when it comes to our sins, they have all been paid for. The sacrifice that needs to be done to remove them from our life has already happened. The people in the Old Testament or the First Testament look forward to that. We look back knowing the victory that Jesus won for us. It's a fantastic thing. This may sound daunting because we want to have the control, right? We want to be able to do something about this because, you know, heaven forbid, we're not in control. We typically can be a little controlling. But the pressure's off. If we accept Jesus Christ, we have that relationship with him, our sin problem is already dealt with. We don't have to earn that grace. It's already been given to us as a gift, freely, willingly, because of the love of our Heavenly Father. So it's interesting, when when Paul says that we should walk worthy of the calling, as I'm looking at this, in and of ourselves, by ourselves, and by what we do, we can never be worthy of that calling. However, 
if we have surrendered our will, if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord, as the offering for our sins, then he can give us our strength through his grace so we can walk worthy. He is what makes us worthy of the calling. We have done nothing to be worthy. So there's a bit of encouragement here. Because it can seem daunting. Walking worthy of the calling. That's a lot. But if our focus is on Him, if our focus is doing as He did, it's possible through His strength. Now that doesn't mean that we're off the hook completely. Because when Paul's saying walk worthy, we still have to choose every day that when we mess up, that we repent. We still need to be in that relationship. We still need to be recognizing the sin in our lives and surrendering it to Christ. Because we're still in this sinful world, folks. And we can't walk in this dirty, sinful, dark world without having our feet get dirty. See, that's the reason why Jesus washed his disciples' feet. You remember when he went to go wash their feet and Peter said, No, Lord, Master, you can't wash my feet. Because Peter recognized that Jesus was the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and that compared to him, he was no one that he should be washing Jesus' feet. But Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me, because we are still affected by this sinful world. It still affects us. But when we make a mistake, we need to repent. We need to continue to keep our gaze on our master on our rabbi because he shows us the way to walk. He is the one that allows us to walk worthy. And we don't do it for ourselves. It's to glorify God because we recognize without him we cannot do it. Just as John the Baptist said, as we are walking with him, we need to decrease and he must increase. Our self-importance must be lowered. Now, I'm not telling you you got to be a doormat. I'm not saying that when someone abuses you, you've just got to sit there and take it. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he wasn't saying you should let somebody beat the tar out of you. Man, you guys are quiet this morning. Is what I'm saying just that heavy? We need to just recognize that in the grand scheme of everything, in eternity, we're just lucky to have a ticket. We're just lucky to be there. And 
we need to be looking to help everyone else. Looking to everyone else's needs. We need to put others first. You may remember there was a while back some uh, campaign and some a saying that was going around, a slogan, I am second. Christ doesn't call us to be second. He calls us to be least. He calls us to put ourselves last. Because brothers and sisters, we, we are family. Look, look around. Look around to your left, to your right, to the front of you. I'm not, I won't tell you to look around the back of you. That can be painful for some people. That's your brother. That's your sister. Now, I know the way the world portrays families these days, especially in media, especially if you watch any television shows. It's shameful. It's shameless. That's not the kind of family I'm talking about. I'm not even talking about the kind of family you saw in Leave it to Beaver, if you've ever had the privilege of watching that show. But I'm talking about the family that God set up. A family that loves and respects each other. I'm talking about a family that doesn't backbite one another, that doesn't put each other down, but that constantly seeks to lift each other up, to help each other out. Because, brothers and sisters, when a member of this body hurts, we should all hurt. If we're not hurting, there's a concern that we're not joined to the body in the first place. And if we're not joined to the body, then we're not joined to Christ. And that's a scary place. Because Jesus says that the limbs that are not attached to the vine will be thrown into the fire. Sermon for another day. But everything that we say and do, especially with one another, and absolutely outside of this family, should be done in love. Putting others' needs first. Christ gives us what we need to stay humble, to be patient and loving with each other. As we read on in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That's interesting, as we're sitting here and we're we're talking, Paul here in this section kind of bookends things. And talking about the body of Christ walking in his righteousness. But in the middle of it, there's this area this section, and it is, to be honest, the crux of it. And it shouldn't be surprising because what it is, is the gospel. I say that, and some of you might be going, 
chaplain, I, I don't get it. I don't see it. I'll be honest with you, until I studied it out pretty hard this, this last month, I didn't see it either. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus came down from heaven. We've got December coming up. As, as Dan said, everybody, everybody becomes an Adventist in December. We're all enjoying that Advent season. But Jesus came from, from heaven. And that's important. That's important because he came from this beautiful place, beauty beyond imagining, beauty that when we see it and we behold it, we will see colors we've never seen in our lives. We couldn't have possibly seen in a sinful world. He came from a place of absolute and pure light. A place of truth that was undiluted by lies, undiluted by deception. And he left that perfect place to come here. A place of darkness. A place of wickedness. A place of sin. A place of anything horrible and wretched you can consider in the entire world. He came here. And that's significant for many reasons. And I discovered through this study that I could easily preach a sermon or two or three over this section. But it's important because this is not his origin story on earth. His beginnings did not start in a stable surrounded by animals to parents of lowly means, to being the son of a carpenter. That's not where his story started. Because Jesus was before that. And there was never a time when he was not. Because he is God. He is eternal. He is the one and only who has the right to be worshipped on this earth. An entire universe for that matter. Not just here. But heaven. In the very throne room of God, he has the right to be worshipped. But he came here. And he came here for a purpose. He could have become the king of this world. But that's not what he came to do. He came here and he healed the sick. He made the mute to speak. He made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. He healed the incurable. And he even raised men from the dead. There was nothing he could not do, yet he didn't do one single thing for his comfort. It would have taken simply a word, and this whole world, he would have been delivered, and this whole world would have been destroyed. He had that kind of power. And yet he came to serve. His creation. 
He came as a servant. He lowered himself purposely to take care of us. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, he allowed himself to be arrested, though he committed no crime. He allowed himself to be mocked, even though he did not say one word against anyone in hatred. He allowed himself to be beaten, though he had not even bruised a reed. He allowed himself to be whipped. Not just whipped, but flesh torn from his back to where it looked like hamburger. His ribs would have been showing with as many lashes as he received. Then he took up the weight of our sins on his shoulders and he drug it up Mount Calvary. And there he stretched out his arms where he was nailed to the cruelest instrument of torture. He said nothing against anyone. And he gave his life. He surrendered his life for us. Darkness fell. The veil between the holy and most holy was torn from top to bottom to show that we, through him, have access to our Creator. And he rested in the grave, but he didn't stay there. Y'all, he rose on Sunday morning. Just at dawn, I would imagine. Because by the time Mary Magdalene gets there, he's already dressed and ready to go. Then he gives his disciples instructions. And hey, let's face it, after that display on cavalry and in the courts of Pilate, there weren't a whole lot left. But he gives them instructions. He teaches them. He shows them why this had happened. And then he tells them again. He says, hey, the Holy Spirit's coming. I'm charging you to continue the mission. Charlie, Mike, and move out. And he ascends to heaven. And in heaven he becomes our high priest. What Paul is saying through this passage is that Jesus paid it all. He took care of it. He gave everything to give us what we need to further the gospel mission in this world so that sin can be fully completed and done and over Anybody wants to hear this later, I better put this back on. That was it. In that time that he was here, it culminates in him defeating 
shame and guilt and defeating sickness and death and sin all together. He is the key to being able to restore this world to the glory of God. This is it. This is the key part of this passage. And it was hitting me like a ton of bricks, especially on Wednesday night, as I got together with our fellow chaplains and we were talking about it. And I was just, I was like, I see it, but at the same time, and then especially as I was talking to Chaplain Verdon, he's like, well, I see a chiastic structure here. Well, I see chiastic structures in everything. You don't know what a chiastic structure is, I understand. But in Hebrew writing, you've got a beginning statement, and then it goes down to a statement that's very similar at the end, and in the middle is the key of what he's saying. And no big surprise, what Paul is saying is, Jesus died to take care of your sins so that you can be resurrected in the heritage of being a son and daughter of God in a perfect world. He's already taken care of it. He did what he needed to do so that we can have what we need because Christ did not expect us to go forward in this mission empty-handed. So as we continue on with verses 11 through 16, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the very effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I'll tell you that these spiritual gifts that Paul talks about here are not extensive. So why does he talk about these? I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems that in Christ's family that these gifts are not respected like they used to be. And I get it. Especially in the 80s and 90s, we had key leaders men that people thought were unapproachable that fell hard and in the public eye. It's easy for a chaplain, a.k.a. a pastor, to sit here and talk about how these gifts are important and should be respected. However, I don't say this because I feel like people should look up to me like I feel like people should respect me. That's not the deal. Because I am here, Chaplain Braswell is here, Chaplain Harrison is here. We're here to serve you. 
as Christ served his church. We should all be serving one another. And yet there are some of us that God has given this gift to be able to come, to be able to read through his word, to listen to him attentively. And when he gives us a message, we are willing to say, okay, Lord, I may get crucified over this, but I'm willing to go before your people and tell them. The time is coming, if it has not come already, that the respect that we have for our pastors, for our church planners, for our evangelists, for those that are willing to proclaim a message that God has given them himself, for our worship leaders, to be respected. Mind you, that means that those of us that God has given those gifts to should be having that close walk with Christ. Because we, brothers and sisters, I, I, Dan, I'm, I'm not trying to cut our head off here, but Chaplain Braswell and I and Chaplain Harrison and I, we, we are not the head of the church. We have been placed by God in places of leadership. But we're not in charge of this church. Christ is. We are receiving our orders from Christ. Much the same you are. Our orders just may be a little different. Because while this is not exhaustive, and yes, we need to respect these positions because, hey, guys, I got to tell you, we're in the hot seat. You want to go to a place that is in battle spiritually and people need to be constantly wearing the armor of God. It's in the house of a pastor or an evangelist. We are getting looked at even more as Paul tells us, hey, these are not positions you should covet because they're having to walk the line tighter than anybody. We're living in class houses. And I want to live up to that call. It is my desire. I want to be in touch with Christ to the point where no one can say, oh, well, he said he believed in Jesus, and yet look at him. Look at what he's doing. It's not the easiest thing. That being said, if any part of this body is not working, it's not healthy. It's only when every part of this body, every member in this family is doing what God is calling them to do that we're healthy. Now, you don't have to be, you don't have to become a chaplain. If God is calling you that, God bless you. We will be praying for you. Maybe you're not being called to come and be a worship leader up here to, to help lead the congregation in songs. That's fine. We still need people in the back, hint, hint, that will help to do the slides, that will help with the, the music, because we want this time of worship to be edifying for all of us and to be done to the glory of God, period. Which means we want to give it, a, we want to give it our all. This is not here to entertain you. We come together, we assemble together to be charged, to be reminded of the mission that we have so that when we go out there, 
during the week that we remember that every breath is a gift of God. And every breath can be used to curse or every breath can be used to bless. Our focus should be on every breath being a blessing. Not for our glory, but to the glory of God. To meet the needs of others. Every single person in here, every member of the body has been given a gift by God to help this body to grow. doesn't matter what that gift is. But Christ is very clear that if we don't use the gifts that God has given us, what will happen? Just read the parable of the talents if you haven't read it. I won't get into that. That's a whole other sermon and I'm running out of time. Brothers and sisters, it's this simple. In an age of where people are divided, the church needs to wake up. We need to cast that division out because it's from Satan. It is from the enemy. We need to come together. We need to be in prayer to put aside the bitterness, the anger, the pain that we have and to surrender it to God that we may come together to begin to move forward because we are really close to that finish line. We need to strive harder so that when he comes, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We need to be unified. But this must be done in love. Guarding all truth and casting aside anything that is not of Christ. Let us come together. Use the gifts that God has given us and stand against the enemy that is at the gates. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I know that you've been moving on my heart. I ask that you would continue to shine a light on any sinful areas of my life. I ask that you would move on each and every one of us, each and every member of this body. That you would shine on the areas that we need to surrender to you. That we may put aside any poisonous thing within our heart. That you may take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. That we may come together to stand in this battle, in this war with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.